CD3 The next morning was bright and clear, like all Holywood days, and they made a start on the interesting and curious adventures of Cohen the Barbarian. Dibbler had worked on it all evening, he said. The title, however, was Silverfishes. Although Dibbler had assured him that Cohen the Barbarian was practically historical and certainly educational, Silverfish had held out against Valley of Blood. Victor was handed what looked like a leather purse, but which turned out to be his costume. He changed behind a couple of rocks. He was also given a large blunt sword. Now, said Dibbler, who was sitting in a canvas chair, what you do is you fight the trolls, rush up and untie the girl from the stake, fight the other trolls, and then run off behind that other rock over there. That's the way I see it. What do you say, Tommy? Well, I, um... Silverfish began. That's great, said Dibbler. OK. Yes, Victor? You mentioned trolls. Uh, what trolls, said Victor? The two rocks unfolded themselves. Don't you worry about a thing, mister, said the nearest one. Me and old Galena over there have got this down pat. Trolls, said Victor, backing away. That's right, said Galena. He flourished a club with a nail in it. But, uh, but, Victor began. Yeah, said the other troll. What Victor would like to have said was, but your trolls, fierce animated rocks that live in the mountains and bash travellers with huge clubs very similar to the ones you're holding now, and I thought when they said trolls they meant ordinary men dressed up in, oh, I don't know, sacking painted grey or something. Oh, good, he said weakly. Um, and don't you go listening to them stories about us eating people, said Galena. That's a slander, that is. I mean, we're made of rock. What did we want to eat people for? Swaller, said the other troll. You mean swaller? Yeah. What should we want to swaller people for? We always spit out the bits. And anyway, we've retired from all that now, he added quickly. Not that we ever did it. He nudged Victor in a friendly fashion, nearly breaking one of his ribs. It's good here he said conspiratorially. We get three dollars a day plus a dollar barrier cream allowance for daylight working. On account of turning to stone until nightfall otherwise, what is a pain? said his companion. Yeah, and it holds up shooting and people strike matches on you. Plus, our contract says we get five pence extra for use of our own club, said the other troll. If we could just uh, get started, Silverfish began. Why is there only two trolls? complained Dibbler. What's heroic about fighting two trolls? I asked for twenty, didn't I? Er, uh, two's fine by me, Victor called out. Listen, Mr Dibbler, said Silverfish, I know you're trying to help, but the, um, basic economics... Silverfish and Dibbler started to argue. Gaffer, the handleman, sighed and took the back off the moving picture box to feed and water the demons who were complaining. Victor leaned on his sword. Do a lot of this sort of thing, do you? he said to the trolls. Yeah, said Galena, all the time. Like, in A King's Ransom, I play a troll who rushed out and hit people. And in The Dark Forest, I play a troll who rushed out and hit people. And, and, and in Mystery Mountain, I play a troll who rushed out and jumped up and down on people. It doesn't pay to get typecast. And do you do the same thing? said Victor to the other troll. "'Oh, Moraine's a character actor, ain't you?' said Galena. "'Best in the business.' "'What does he play?' "'Rocks.' Victor stared. "'On account of his craggy features,' Galena went on, "'not just rocks. "'You should see him do an ancient monolith. "'You'd be amazed. "'Go on, Maury, show him your inscription.' "'Nah,' said Moraine, grinning sheepishly. "'I'm thinking of changing my name for moving pictures,' Galena went on. "'Something with a bit of class. I thought, Flint.' He gave Victor a worried look, insofar as Victor was any judge of the range of expressions available to a face that looked as though it had been kicked out of granite with a pair of steel-toed boots. "'What you think?' he said. "'Um, oh, it's very nice.' "'More dynamic, I thought,' said the prospective Flint.' Victor heard himself say, Or oh, Rock. Rock's a nice name. The trolls stared at him. 
its lips moving soundlessly as it tried out the alias. "'Cool,' he said. "'Never thought of that. Rock. I like that. I reckon I'd be due more than three dollars a day with a name like Rock.' "'Can we make a start?' said Dibbler sternly. "'Maybe we'll be able to afford more trolls if this is a successful click. "'But it won't be if we have to go over budget, "'which means we ought to wrap it up by lunchtime. "'Now, Murray and Galena.' "'Rock,' corrected Rock. "'Really? Anyway, you two rush out and attack Victor, OK? "'Right, turn it.' "'The handleman turned the handle of the picture box. "'There was a faint clicking noise "'and a chorus of small yelps from the demons.' Victor stood looking helpful and alert. Um, that means you start, said Silverfish patiently. The trolls rush out from behind the rocks, and you valiantly defend yourself. But I don't know how to fight trolls, Victor wailed. Tell you what, said the newly christened Rock. You parry first, and we'll sort of arrange not to hit you. Light dawned. You mean, it's all... "'Pretending?' said Victor. "'The trolls exchanged a brief glance, "'which nevertheless contrived to say, "'Amazing isn't it that things like this "'apparently rule the world?' "'Yeah,' said Rock. "'That's it. Nothing's real.' "'We ain't allowed to kill ya,' said Moraine reassuringly. "'That's right,' said Rock. "'We wouldn't go round killing ya.' "'They stops our money if we do things like that.' said Moraine morosely. Outside the fault in reality, they clustered, peering in with something approaching eyes at the light and warmth. There was a crowd of them by now. There had been a way through once. To say that they remembered it would be wrong, because they had nothing as sophisticated as memory. They barely had anything as sophisticated as heads, but they did have instincts and emotions. They needed a way in. They found it. It worked quite well the sixth time. The main problem was the trolls' enthusiasm for hitting each other, the ground, the air, and quite often themselves. In the end, Victor just concentrated on trying to hit the clubs as they whirred past him. Dibbler seemed quite happy with this. Gaffer wasn't. They moved around too much, he said. They were out of the picture half the time. It was a battle, said Silverfish. "'Yeah, but I can't move the picture box around,' said the handleman. "'The imps fall over.' "'Couldn't you strap them in or something?' said Dibbler. "'Gaffer scratched his chin. "'I suppose I can nail their feet to the floor,' he said. "'Anyway, it'll do for now,' said Silverfish. "'We'll do the scene where you rescue the girl. "'Where's the girl? I distinctly instructed her to be here. "'Why isn't she here? Why doesn't anyone ever do what I tell them?' The handleman took his cigarette stub out of his mouth. "'She's filming a bold adventure over the other side of the hill,' he volunteered. "'But that ought to have been finished yesterday,' wailed Silverfish. "'Film exploded,' said the handleman. "'Blast! Well, I suppose we can do the next fight. She doesn't have to be in it,' said Silverfish grumpily. "'All right, everybody. We'll do the bit where Victor fights the dreaded Belgrog.' "'What's a Belgrog?' said Victor. A friendly but heavy hand tapped him on the shoulder. "'It's a traditional evil monster, what is basically Mori, painted green with wings stuck on,' said Rock. "'I'll just go and help him with the painting,' he lumbered off. No one seemed to want Victor at the moment. He stuck the ridiculous sword into the sand, wandered away and found a bit of shade under some scrubby olive trees. There were rocks here. He tapped them gently. They didn't appear to be anyone.' The ground formed a cool little hollow that was almost pleasant by the seared standards of Holywood Hill. There was even a draught blowing from somewhere. As he leaned back against the stones, he felt a cool breeze coming from them. Must be full of caves under here, he thought. Far away, in unseen university, in a draughty, many-pillared corridor, a little device that no one had paid much attention to for years started to make a noise. So, this was Holywood. It hadn't looked like this on the silver screen. It seemed that moving pictures involved a lot of waiting around, and if he was hearing things right, a mixing up of time. 
Things happened before the things they happened after. The monsters were just Mori painted green with wings stuck on. Nothing was really real. Funnily enough, that was exciting. I've just about had enough of this, said a voice beside him. He looked up. A girl had come down the other path. Her face was red with exertion under the pale makeup. Her hair hung over her eyes in ridiculous ringlets, and she wore a dress which, while clearly made for her size, was designed for someone who was ten years younger and keen on lace edging. She was quite attractive, although this fact was not immediately apparent. "'And you know what they say when you complain?' she demanded. This was not really addressed to Victor. He was just a convenient pair of ears. "'I can't imagine,' said Victor politely. "'They say there's plenty of other people out there "'just waiting for a chance to get into moving pictures. "'That's what they say.' "'She leaned against a gnarled tree and fanned herself with her straw hat. "'And it's too hot,' she complained. "'And now I've got to do a ridiculous one-reeler for Silverfish, "'who hasn't got the faintest idea, "'and some kid probably with bad breath and hay in his hair "'and a forehead you could lay a table on.' And trolls, said Victor mildly. Oh, gods, not Murray and Galena. Yes, only Galena's calling himself Rock now. I thought it was going to be Flint. He likes Rock. From behind the rocks came the plaintive bleat of Silverfish, wondering where everyone had got to just when he needed them. The girl rolled her eyes. Oh, gods, for this I'm missing lunch? "'You could always eat it off my forehead,' said Victor, standing up. "'He had the satisfaction of feeling her thoughtful gaze on the back of his neck "'as he retrieved his sword and gave it a few experimental swishes "'with rather more force than was necessary. "'You're the boy in the street, aren't you?' she said. "'That's right, you're the girl who was going to be shot,' said Victor. "'I see they missed.' "'She looked at him curiously. "'How did you get a job so quickly? "'Most people have to wait weeks for a chance.' "'Chances are where you find them, I've always said,' said Victor. "'But how did you?' Victor had already strolled away with gleeful nonchalance. She trailed after him, her face locked in a petulant pout. "'Ah!' said Silverfish sarcastically, looking up. "'My word, everyone where they should be. "'Very well, we'll go from the bit where he finds her tied to the stake. "'What you do,' he said to Victor, "'is untie her, then drag her off and fight the Belgrog. "'And you,' he pointed to the girl, "'you, you, you just, just, just follow him "'and look as rescued as you possibly can, OK? "'I'm good at that,' she said resignedly. No, 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 said Dibbler, putting his head in his hands. Not that again. Isn't that what you wanted, said Silverfish? Fights and rescues? There's got to be more to it than that, said Dibbler. Well, like what? Silverfish demanded. Oh, I don't know. Razzmatazz. Oomph. The old Zonkaroonie. Funny noises. We haven't got sound. "'Everyone makes clicks about people running around and fighting and falling over,' said Dibbler. "'There should be something more. "'I've been looking at the things you make here, and they all look the same to me.' "'Well, all sausages look the same to me,' snapped Silverfish. "'They are meant to. That's what people expect.' "'And I'm giving them what they expect too,' said Silverfish. "'People like to see more of what they expect.' Fights and chases, and that sort of thing. Excuse me, Mr. Silverfish, said the handleman above the angry chattering of the demons. Yes, snapped Dibbler. Excuse me, Mr. Dibbler, but I got to feed em in a quarter of an hour. Dibbler groaned. In retrospect, Victor was always a little unclear about those next few minutes. That's the way it goes. The moments that change your life are the ones that happen suddenly, like the one where you die. There had been another stylized battle, he knew that much, with Mori, and what would have been a fearsome whip if the troll hadn't kept tangling it around his own legs. And when the dreadful Balgrog had been beaten and had slid out of shot, mugging terribly and trying to hold its wings on with one hand, he'd turned and cut the ropes holding the girl to the stake and should have dragged her sharply to the right when the whispering started. There were no words, but there was something that was the heart of words that went straight through his ears and down his spinal column without bothering to make a stopover in his brain. He stared into the girl's eyes and wondered if she was hearing it too. 
A long way off there were words. There was Silverfish saying, Come on, get on with it. What are you looking at her like that for? And the handleman saying, They gets really fractious if they misses a meal. And Dibbler saying, in a voice hissing like a thrown knife, Don't stop turning the handle. The edges of his vision went cloudy, and there were shapes in the cloud that changed and faded before he had a chance to examine them. Helpless as a fly in an amber flow, as much in control of his destiny as a soap bubble in a hurricane. He leaned down and kissed her. There were more words behind the ringing in his ears. Why is he doing that? Did I tell him to do that? No one told him to do that. And then I have to muck him out afterwards, and let me tell you, it's no... Turn that handle! Turn that handle! screamed Dibbler. Now, why is he looking like that? Cool. If you stop turning that handle, you'll never work in this town again. Listen, mister, I happen to belong to the Handleman's Guild. Don't stop. Don't stop. Victor surfaced. The whispering faded, to be replaced by the distant boom of the breakers. The real world was back, hot and sharp. The sun pinned to the sky like a medal awarded for being a great day. The girl took a deep breath. Um... Gosh, er, uh, I'm terribly sorry, babbled Victor, backing away. I really don't know what, what happened. Uh, Dibbler jumped up and down. That's it! That's it! he yelled. How soon can you have it ready? Well, like I said, I gotta feed the imps and muck em out. Right, right. It'll give me time to get some posters drawn, said Dibbler. I've already had some done, said Silverfish coldly. I bet you have. I bet you have, said Dibbler excitedly. I bet you have. I bet they say things like, you might like to see a quite interesting moving picture. Well, what's wrong with that? Silverfish demanded. It's a bloody sight better than hot sausage. I told you, when you sell sausages, you don't just hang around waiting for people to want sausage. You go out there and make them hungry. And you put mustard on them. And that's what your lad there has done. He clapped one hand on Silverfish's shoulder and waved the other expansively. Can't you see it? he said. He hesitated. Strange ideas were pouring into his head faster than he could think them. He felt dizzy with excitement and possibilities. Sword of passion, he said. That's what we'll call it. Not name it after some daft old bugger who's probably not even alive anymore. Sword of passion. Yeah, a tumultuous saga of of desire and and raw, uh, raw, raw what's name in the primal heat of a tortured continent, romance, glamour in three searing reels, thrill to the death fight with ravening monsters, scream as a thousand elephants. It's only one reel, muttered Silverfish testily. "'Shoot some more this afternoon!' crowed Dibbler, his eyes revolving. "'You just need more fights and monsters!' "'And there's certainly no elephants!' snapped Silverfish. "'Rock put up a craggy arm. "'Yes?' demanded Silverfish. "'If you've got some grey paint and stuff to make the ears out of, "'I'm sure me and Maury could... "'No one's ever done a three-reeler,' said Gaffer reflectively. "'Could be really tricky. "'I mean it'd be nearly ten minutes long!' He looked thoughtful. I suppose if I was to make the spools bigger... Silverfish knew he was cornered. Now look here, he began. Victor stared down at the girl. Everyone else was ignoring them. Um, he said, I don't think we've been formally introduced. You didn't seem to let that stop you, she said. I wouldn't normally do something like that. I must have been ill or something. Oh, good. And that makes me feel a lot better, does it? Shall we sit in the shade? It's very hot out here. Your eyes went all... smoldery. Did they? They looked really odd. I felt really odd. I know. It's this place it gets to you. Do you know, she said, sitting down on the sand... There's all kinds of rules for the imps and things. They mustn't be worn out. What kind of food they get. Stuff like that. No one cares about us, though. Even the trolls get better treatment. It's the way they go around being seven foot tall and weighing a thousand pounds all the time, I expect, said Victor.
My name's Theda Whittle, but my friends call me Ginger, she said. My name's Victor Tugelbend, um, but my friends call me Victor, said Victor. This is your first click, is it? How can you tell? You looked as though you were enjoying it. Well, it's better than working, isn't it? You wait until you've been in it as long as I have, she said bitterly. How long's that? Nearly since the start. Five weeks. Gosh, it's all happened so fast. It's the best thing that's ever happened, said Ginger flatly. Well, I suppose so. Um, are we allowed to go and eat, said Victor. No, they'll be shouting for us again any minute, said Ginger. Victor nodded. He had on the whole got through life quite happily by doing what he pleased in a firm yet easy-going sort of way, and he didn't see why he should stop that, even in Holywood. "'Then they'll have to shout,' he said. "'I want something to eat and a cool drink. Maybe I've just caught a bit too much sun.' Ginger looked uncertain. "'Well, there's the commissary, but good, you can show me the way.' "'They fire people just like that.' "'What, before the third reel?' They say there's plenty more people who are dying to break into the moving pictures, you see. Good, that means they'll have all afternoon to find two of them who look just like us. He strolled past Murray, who was also trying to keep in the shade of a rock. If anyone wants us, he said, we'll be having some lunch. What, right now? said the troll. Yes, said Victor firmly, and strode on. Behind him he could see Dibbler and Silverfish locked in heated discussion, with occasional interruptions from the handleman, who spoke in the leisurely tones of one who knows he's going to get paid six dollars today regardless. "'We'll call it an epic. People will talk about it for ages.' "'Yes, they'll say we went bankrupt. Look, I know where I can get some coloured woodcuts done at practically cost.' Uh, I was thinking maybe if I got some string and tied the moving picture box onto wheels so it could be moved around. People will say, that silverfish, there's a moving picture smith with the guts to give the people what they want, they'll say. A man to roll back the, uh, what's name of the medium. Maybe if I was to make a sort of pole and swivel arrangement, we could bring the picture box right up close to the... What, you, you, you think they'll say that? Trust me, Tommy. Well, well, all right, all right. But uh, no elephants. I want to make that absolutely clear. No elephants. Looks weird to me, said the Arch-Chancellor. Looks like a bunch of pottery elephants. Thought you said it was a machine. More, more of a device said the bursar uncertainly. He gave it a prod. Several of the pottery elephants wobbled. Rictor the Tinkerer built it, I think. It was before my time. It looked like a large ornate pot, almost as high as a man of large pot height. Around its rim, eight pottery elephants hung from little bronze chains. One of them swung backwards and forwards at the bursar's touch. The Arch-Chancellor peered down inside. "'It's all levers and bellows,' he said distastefully. "'The bursar turned to the university housekeeper. "'Well now, Mrs Whitlow,' he said, "'what exactly happened?' "'Mrs Whitlow, huge pink and becorseted, "'patted her ginger wig and nudged the tiny maid "'who was hovering beside her like a tugboat. "'Tell his lordship, Cassandra,' she ordered. "'Cassandra looked as though she was regretting the whole thing.' "'Well, sir, please, sir, uh, I was dusting, you see.' "'She was dusting,' said Mrs Whitlow, helpfully. "'When Mrs Whitlow was in the grip of acute class consciousness, "'she could create H's where nature never intended them to be. "'And then it started making a noise. "'It made a noise.' said Mrs. Whitlow. So she come and told me, your lordship, has her per my instructions. Uh, what kind of noise, Cassandra? said the bursar, as kindly as he could. Please, sir, sort of, she screwed up her eyes. Sir. Plib, said the bursar solemnly. Yes, sir. Plib. "'echoed Mrs. Whitlow. 
And that was when it spat at me, sir, said Cassandra. Expectorated, corrected Mrs. Whitlow. Apparently, one of the elephants spat out a little lead pellet, master, said the bursar. That was the, uh, the, uh, uh plip. Did it, the gods, said the arch-chancellor. Can't have pots going around gobbing all over people? Mrs. Whitlow twitched. Uh, what did it go and do that for? Ridcully added. I couldn't really say, Master. I thought perhaps you'd know. I believe Rictor was a lecturer here when you were a student. Mrs. Whitlow is very concerned, he added, in tones that made it clear that when Mrs. Whitlow was concerned about something, it would be an unwise Arch-Chancellor who ignored her. About staff being magically interfered with. The Arch-Chancellor tapped the pot with his knuckles. What, old numbers, Richter? <laughs> Same fella? Apparently, Arch-Chancellor. Total madman! Thought you could measure everything, not just lengths and weights and that kind of stuff, but everything. If it exists, he said, you ought to be able to measure it. Ridcully's eyes misted with memory. Made all kinds of weird widgets. Reckoned you could measure truth and beauty and dreams and stuff. So this is one of old Richter's toys, is it? Wonder what it measured. I think, said Mrs. Whitlow, that it should be put away somewhere, out of arm's way, if it's all the same to you. Yes, 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 of course, said the bursar hurriedly. Staff were hard to keep at Unseen University. Get rid of it, said the Arch-Chancellor. The bursar was horrified. Oh, no, 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 no sir, he said. We, we never throw things out. Besides, it is probably quite valuable. Hmm, said Ridcully. Yes, valuable. Possibly an important historical artefact, master. Shove it in my study, then. I said the place needs brightening up. It'll be one of them conversation pieces, right? Uh, gotta go now. Gotta see a man about training a griffin. Good day, ladies. Uh, Arch, Arch-Chancellor, I wonder if you could just shine for... The bursar began, but to a closing door. No one asked Cassandra which of the pottery elephants had spat the ball, and the direction wouldn't have meant anything to them anyway. That afternoon a couple of porters moved the universe's only working risograph into the Arch-Chancellor's study. Literally, thingness writer or device for detecting and measuring disturbances in the fabric of reality. No one had found a way to add sound to moving pictures, but there was a sound that was particularly associated with Holywood. It was the sound of nails being hammered. Holywood had gone critical. New houses, new streets, new neighbourhoods appeared overnight. And in those areas where the hastily educated alchemical apprentices were not yet fully alongside the trickier stages of making octocellulose, disappeared even faster. Not that it made a lot of difference. Barely would the smoke have cleared before someone was hammering again. And Holywood grew by fission. All you needed was a steady-handed, non-smoking lad who could read alchemical signs, a handleman, a sackful of demons, and lots of sunshine. Oh, and some people but there were plenty of those. If you couldn't breed demons or mix chemicals or turn a handle rhythmically, you could always hold horses or wait on tables and look interesting while you hoped. Or, if all else failed, hammer nails. Building after rickety buildings skirted the ancient hill, their thin planks already curling and bleaching in the pitiless sun. But there was already a pressing need for more. Because holy wood was calling... More people arrived every day. They didn't come to be ostlers or tavern wenches or short-order carpenters. They came to make movies. And they didn't know why. As cut-me-own-throat Dibbler knew in his heart, wherever two or more people are gathered together, someone will be trying to sell them a suspicious sausage in a bun. Now that Dibbler was in fact engaged elsewhere, others had arisen to fulfil that function. One such was Nodar Borgle the Clatchian, whose huge, echoing shed wasn't so much a restaurant as a feeding factory. Great steaming tureens occupied one end. The rest of it was tables, and around the tables were... Victor was astonished. There were trolls, humans, and dwarfs. And a few gnomes. And perhaps even a few elves. The most elusive of Discworld races. 
and lots of other things which Victor had to hope were trolls dressed up, because if they weren't, everyone was going to be in a lot of trouble. And they were all eating, and the amazing thing was that they were not eating one another. You take a plate, and you queue up, and then you pay for it, said Ginger. It's called self-surf. You pay for it before you eat? What happens if it's dreadful? Ginger nodded grimly. That's why. Victor shrugged and leaned down to the dwarf behind the lunch counter. I'd like... It's stew, said the dwarf. What kind of stew? There ain't more than one kind, that's why it's stew, the dwarf snapped. Stew is stew. What I meant was, what's in it, said Victor. If you need to ask, you're not hungry enough, said Ginger. Two stews, Frontkin. Victor stared at the grey-brown stuff that was dribbled onto his plate. Strange lumps, carried to the surface by mysterious convection currents, bobbed for a moment and then sank back down, hopefully forever. Borgel belonged to the Dibbler School of Cuisine. "'It's stew or nothing, boy,' the cook leered. "'Half a dollar, cheap at half the price.' Victor handed over the money with reluctance and looked around for Ginger. Over here, said Ginger, sitting down at one of the long tables. Hi, Thunderfoot. Hi, Breccia. How's it going? This is Vic, new boy. Hi, Snidden. Didn't see you there. Victor found himself wedged between Ginger and a mountain troll in what looked like chainmail, but turned out to be just Holywood chainmail, which was inexpertly knitted string painted silver. Ginger started talking animatedly to a four-inch-high gnome and a dwarf in one half of a bear outfit, leaving Victor feeling a little isolated. The troll nodded at him and then grimaced at its plate. "'They call this pumice,' he said. "'They never even bother to cut the lava off, and you can't even taste the sand.' Victor stared at the troll's plate. "'I didn't know trolls ate rock,' he said, before he could stop himself. "'Why not?' Well, aren't you made of it? Yeah, but you're made of meat, and what do you eat? Victor looked at his own plate. Good question, he said. Vic's doing a click for silverfish, said Ginger, turning around. It looks like they're going to make it a three-reeler. There was a general murmur of interest. Victor carefully laid something yellow and wobbly on the side of his plate. "'Tell me,' he said thoughtfully, "'while you've been filming, have any of you had a... "'heard a sort of, uh, felt that you were... Um, "'He hesitated. They were all looking at him. "'I mean, did you ever feel something was acting through you? "'I can't think of any other way to put it.' "'His fellow diners relaxed. "'That's just Hollywood,' said the troll. "'It gets to you. It's all this creativity sloshing about.' That was a pretty bad attack you had, though, said Ginger. Happens all the time, said the dwarf reflectively. It's just Hollywood. Last week me and the lads were working on Tales of the Dwarfies, and suddenly we all started singing just like that. Just like this, this song came into our heads all at once. What do you think of that? What song, said Ginger. Search me! We just call it the hi-ho song. That's all it was. Hi-ho, 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 hi-ho. Sounds like every other dwarf song I ever did hear, rumbled the troll. It was past two o'clock when they got back to the moving picture-making place. The handleman had the back off the picture box and was scraping at its floor with a small shovel. Dibbler was asleep in his canvas chair with a handkerchief over his face, but Silverfish was wide awake. Where have you two been? he shouted. I was hungry, said Victor, and you'll jolly well stay hungry, my lad, because... Dibbler lifted the corner of his handkerchief. Let's get started, he muttered. But we can't have performers telling us what... Finish the click, then sack him, said Dibbler. Right. Silverfish waved a threatening finger at Victor and Ginger. You'll never work in this town again. They got through the afternoon somehow. Dibbler made them bring a horse in and cursed the handleman because the picture box still couldn't be moved around. The demons complained, so they put the horse head-on in front of the box and Victor bounced up and down in the saddle. As Dibbler said, it was good enough for moving pictures. Afterwards, Silverfish very grudgingly paid them two dollars each and dismissed them. 
"'He'll tell all the other alchemists,' said Ginger dispiritedly. "'They'll stick together like glue.' "'I notice we only get two dollars a day, but the trolls get three, said Victor. "'Why's that?' "'Because there aren't so many trolls wanting to make moving pictures,' said Ginger, "'and a good handleman can get six or seven dollars a day. "'Performers aren't important.' "'She turned and glared at him. "'I was doing okay,' she said. "'Nothing special, but okay. "'I was getting quite a lot of work. "'People thought I was reliable. "'I was building a career.' "'You can't build a career on Holywood,' said Victor. "'That's like building a house on a swamp. "'Nothing's real.' "'I liked it, and now you've spoiled it all, "'and I'll probably have to go back to a horrible little village "'you've probably never even heard of. "'Back to bloody milkmaiding. Thanks very much. "'Every time I see a cow's ass, I'll think of you.' "'She stormed off in the direction of the town, "'leaving Victor with the trolls. "'After a while, Rock cleared his throat. <clears> throat> "'You got anywhere to stay?' he said. "'I don't think so.' said Victor weakly. "'There's never enough places to stay,' said Morrie. "'I thought I might sleep on the beach,' said Victor. "'It's warm enough, after all. "'I think I really could do with a good rest. "'Good night.' He tottered off in that direction. The sun was setting and a wind off the sea had cooled things a little. Around the darkening bulk of the hill the lights of holy wood were being lit. Holy wood only relaxed in the darkness. When your raw material is daylight you don't waste it. It was pleasant enough on the beach. No one much went there. The driftwood, cracked and salt-crusted, was no good for building. It was stacked in a long white row on the tide-line. Victor pulled together enough to make a fire and lay back and watched the surf. From the top of the next dune, hidden behind a dry clump of grass, Gaspode the Wonder Dog watched him thoughtfully. It was two hours after midnight. It had them now and poured joyfully out of the hill, poured its glitter into the world. Holywood dreams. It dreams for everyone. In the hot, breathless darkness of a clapboard shack, Ginger Withell dreamed of red carpets and cheering crowds, and a grating. She kept coming back to a grating in the dream, where a rush of warm air blew up her skirts. In the not-much-cooler darkness of a marginally more expensive shack, Silverfish, the moving picture smith, dreamed of cheering crowds and someone giving him a prize for the best moving picture ever made. It was a great big statue. Out in the sand dunes, Rock and Morrie dozed fitfully, because trolls are night creatures by nature, and sleeping in darkness bruised the instincts of eons. They dreamed of mountains. Down on the beach under the stars, Victor dreamed of pounding hooves, flowing robes, pirate ships, sword fights, chandeliers. On the next dune, Gaspode the Wonder Dog slept with one eye open and dreamed of wolves. But cut-me-own-throat Dibbler was not dreaming, because he was not asleep. It had been a long ride to Ankh Morpork, and he preferred selling horses to riding them, but he was there now. The storms that so carefully avoided Holywood didn't worry about Ark Morpork, and it was pouring with rain. That didn't stop the city's nightlife, though. It just made it damper. There was nothing you couldn't buy in Ark Morpork, even in the middle of the night. Dibbler had a lot of things to buy. He needed posters painted. He needed all sorts of things. Many of them involved ideas he'd had to invent in his head on the long ride, and now had to explain very carefully to other people. And he had to explain it fast. The rain was a solid curtain when he finally staggered out into the grey light of dawn. The gutters overflowed. Along the rooftops, repulsive gargoyles threw up expertly over passers-by, although since it was now 5am the crowd had thinned out a bit. Throat took a deep breath of the thick city air. Real air. You'd have to go a long way to find air that was realer than Ankh Morpork air. You could tell just by breathing it that other people had been doing the same thing for thousands of years. For the first time in days, he felt that he was thinking clearly. That was the strange thing about Holywood. When you were there, it all seemed natural. It all seemed just what life was all about. But when you got away from it and looked back, it was like looking at a brilliant soap bubble. It was as though when you were in Holywood, you weren't quite the same person. Well, Holywood was Holywood, and Ark was Ark and Ankh was solid and proof, in Throat's opinion, against any Holywood weirdness. 
He splashed through the puddles, listening to the rain. After a while, he noticed for the first time in his life that it had a rhythm. Funny, you could live in a city all your life, and you had to go away and come back again before you noticed the way the rain dripping off the gutters had a rhythm all its own. dum de 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 dum a few minutes later, Sergeant Colon and Corporal Nobbs of the Night Watch were sharing a friendly roll-up in the shelter of a doorway and doing what the Night Watch was best at, which was keeping warm and dry and staying out of trouble. They were the only witnesses to the manic figure which splashed down the dripping street, pirouetted through the puddles, grabbed a drainpipe to swing around the corner, and, clicking its heels together merrily, disappeared from view. Sergeant Colon handed the soggy dog-end back to his companion. "'Was that old throat, Dibbler?' he said after a while. "'Yeah,' said Nobby. "'He looked happy, didn't he?' "'Must be off his nut, if you ask me,' said Nobby, "'singing in the rain like that.' "'Whum, whum, whum.' "'The Arch-Chancellor, who had been updating his dragon's stud book "'and enjoying a late-night drink in front of the fire, looked up. "'Whum.' Fum, fum, fum. By gods, he muttered, and wandered over to the big pot. It was actually wobbling from side to side as if the building was shaking. The Arch-Chancellor watched, fascinated. Fum, 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 fum. It wobbled to a standstill and went silent. Odd, said the Arch-Chancellor. Damned odd. Blip. On the other side of the room, his brandy decanter shattered. Rid Cully the Brown took a deep breath. Bursa! Victor was woken up by sandflies. The air was already warm. It was going to be another fine day. He waded out into the shallows to wash and clear his head. Let's see, he still had his two dollars from yesterday, plus a handful of pennies. He could afford to stay a while, especially if he slept on the beach. And Borgel's stew, while only food in the technical sense, was cheap enough. Although, come to think of it, eating there might involve embarrassing encounters with ginger. He took another step and sank. Victor hadn't swum in the sea before. He surfaced, half-drowned, treading water furiously. The beach was only a few yards away. He relaxed, gave himself time to get his breath back, and swam a leisurely crawl out beyond the breakers. The water was crystal clear. He could see the bottom shelving away sharply to... He surfaced for a quick breath. A dim blueness in which it was just possible through the teeming shoals of fish to see the outline of pale rectangular rocks scattered on the sand. He tried a dive, fighting his way down until his ears clanged. The largest lobster he had ever seen waved its feelers at him from a rocky spire and snapped away into the depths. Victor bobbed up again, gasping, and struck out for the shore. Well, if you couldn't make it in moving pictures, there was an opening here for a fisherman, that was certain. A beachcomber would do all right as well. There was enough wind-dried firewood piled up on the edge of the dunes to keep Ark Moorpork's fires supplied for years. No one in Holywood would dream of lighting a fire except for cooking or company. And someone had been doing just that. As he waded ashore, Victor realised that the wood further along the beach had been stacked not haphazardly, but apparently by design, in neat piles. Further along, stones had been stacked into a crude fireplace. It was clogged with sand. Maybe someone else had been living on the beach, waiting their big chance in moving pictures. Come to think of it, the timber behind the half-buried stones had a dragged-together look. You could imagine, looking at it from the sea, that several bulks of timber had been set up to form an arched doorway. Perhaps they were still there. Perhaps they might have something to drink. They were indeed still there. But they hadn't needed a drink for months. It was eight in the morning. A thunderous knocking awoke Bizam Planter, owner of the Odium, one of Ark Moorpork's mushrooming crop of moving picture pits. He'd had a bad night. The people of Ark Moorpork liked novelty. The trouble was that they didn't like novelty for long. The Odium had done great business for a week, had broken even for the next week, and was now dying. The late showing last night had been patronised by one deaf dwarf and an orangutan who'd brought along his own peanuts. Bizam relied on the sale of peanuts and banged grains for his profit and wasn't in a good mood. He opened the door and stared out blearily. We're shut till two o'clock, he said. 
Matney. Come back then. Seats in all parts. He slammed the door. It rebounded off Throat Dibbler's boot and hit Bizam on the nose. I've come about the special showing of Sword of Passion, said Throat. Special showing? What special showing? The special showing I'm about to tell you about, said Throat. We ain't showing nothing about any special passionate swords. We're showing the exciting... Mr. Dibbler says you're showing Sword of Passion, rumbled a voice. Throat leaned against the doorway. Behind him was a slab of rock. It looked as though someone had been throwing steel balls at it for thirty years. It creased in the middle and leaned down towards Bizam. He recognised Detritus. Everyone recognised Detritus. He wasn't a troll, you forgot. But I haven't even heard of... Throat pulled a large tin from under his coat and grinned. And here... Or some posters, he added, producing a fat white roll. Mr. Dibbler, let me stick some up on walls, said Detritus proudly. Bizam unrolled the poster. It was in eye-watering colours. It showed a picture of what might just possibly be Ginger, pouting in a blouse too small for her, and Victor in the act of throwing her over one shoulder while fighting an assortment of monsters with the other hand. In the background, volcanoes were erupting, dragons were zooming through the sky, and cities were burning down. The motion picture they could not ban, read Bizam hesitantly. A scorching adventure in the white-hot dawn of a new continent. A man and a woman thrown together in the whirlpool of a world gone mad. Daring Dolores de Sin as the woman, and Victor Maraschino as Cohen the Barbarian. Thrills, adventure, elephants, coming soon to a pit near you. He read it again. Who's staring Dolores de Sin, he said suspiciously. "'That's starring,' said Throat. "'That's why we've put stars against their names, see?' He leaned closer and lowered his voice to a piercing whisper. "'They do say,' he said, "'that she's the daughter of a Clatchian pirate "'and his wild headstrong captive, "'and he's the son of... Uh, "'the son of a rogue wizard "'and a reckless gypsy flamenco dancer.' "'Cool,' said Bizam, impressed despite himself. Dibbler permitted himself a mental slap on the back. He'd been quite taken with it himself. "'I reckon you should start showing it in about an hour,' he said. "'At this time in the morning,' said Bizam. The click he had obtained for the day was an exciting study of pottery-making, which had been worrying him. This seemed a much better proposition. "'Yes,' said Dibbler, "'because a lot of people are going to want to watch it.' "'I don't know about that,' said Bizam. "'Houses have been falling off lately.' They all want to watch this one, said Throat. Trust me, have I ever lied to you? Bizam scratched his head. Well, one night last month you sold me a sausage in a bun, and you said... I was speaking rhetorically, snapped Throat. Yeah, said Detritus. Bizam sagged. Oh, well, I don't know about rhetorically, he said. "'Right,' said Throat, grinning like a predatory pumpkin. "'Just you open up and you can sit back and rake in the money.' "'Oh, good,' said Bizam weakly. Throat put a friendly arm around the man's shoulders. "'And now,' he said, "'let's talk about percentages.' "'What are percentages?' "'Have a cigar,' said Throat. Victor walked slowly up Holywood's nameless main street. There was packed sand under his fingernails. He wasn't sure that he'd done the right thing. Probably the man had just been some old beachcomber who'd just gone to sleep one day and hadn't woken up. Although the stained red and gold coat was unusual beachcombing wear, it was hard to tell how long he'd been dead. The dryness and salt air had been a preservative. They'd preserved him just the way he must have looked when he was alive, which was like someone who was dead. By the look of his hut, he'd beachcombed some odd stuff. It had occurred to Victor that someone ought to be told. 
but there was probably no one in Holywood who would be interested. Probably only one person in the world had been interested in whether the old man lived or died, and he'd been the first to know. Victor buried the body in the sand, landward of the driftwood hut. He saw Borgles ahead of him. He'd risk breakfast there, he decided. Besides, he needed somewhere to sit down and read the book. It wasn't the sort of thing you expected to find on a beach, in a driftwood hut, clutched in the hand of a dead man. On the cover were the words, The Book of the Film. On the first page, in the neat round hand of someone to whom writing doesn't come easily, were the further words, This is the chronicle of the keepers of the Paramountain, copied out by me, Deccan, Beaucours, of the old one, it being falling apart. He turned the stiff pages carefully. They seemed to be crammed with almost identical entries. They were all undated, but that wasn't very important, since one day had been pretty much like the other. Got up, went to lavatory, made up fire, announced the matinee performance, broke fast, collected wood, made up fire, foraged on the hilly, chanted the evening performance, supper, said the late-night performance, chant, went to lavatory bed, got up, went to lavatory, made up fire, said the matinee performance, broke fast, Crullet the fisherman from Jowser Cove, have left two fine sea bass, collected wood, heralded the even-wing performance, made up fire, housekeeping, supper, chanted the late-night performance, bed, got up at midnighty, went to lavatory, checked fire, but it was not needful of wood. He saw the waitress out of the tail of his eye. I'd like a boiled egg, he said. It's stew, fish stew. He looked up into Ginger's blazing eyes. I didn't know you were a waitress, he said. She made a show of dusting the salt bowl. Nor did I until yesterday, she said. Lucky for me, Borgel's regular morning girl got a chance in the new moving picture that untied alchemists are making, isn't it? She shrugged. If I'm really lucky, who knows, I might get to do the afternoon shift too. Look, I didn't mean... It's stew. Take it or leave it. Three customers this morning have done both. I'll take it. Look, you won't believe it, but I found this book in the hands of a... I'm not allowed to dally with customers. This isn't the best job in town, but you're not losing it for me, snapped Ginger. Fish stew, right? Oh, right. Sorry. He flicked backwards through the pages. Before Deccan, there was Tento, who also chanted three times a day, and also sometimes received gifts of fish, and also went to the lavatory, although either he wasn't so assiduous about it as Deccan, or hadn't thought it always worth writing down. Before that, someone called Megalin had been the chanter. A whole string of people had lived on the beach, and then if you went back further, there was a group of them, and further still, the entries had a more official feel. It was hard to tell. They seemed to be written in code, line after line of little complex pictures. A bowl of primal soup was plonked down in front of him. Look, he said, what time do you get off? Never, said Ginger. I just wondered if you might know... No. Victor stared at the murky surface of the broth. Borgel worked on the principle that if you find it in the water, it's a fish. There was something purple in there, and it had at least ten legs. He ate it anyway. It was costing him thirty pence. Then, with Ginger resolutely busying herself at the counter with her back-to-him lighthouse fashion, so that however he tried to attract her attention, her back was still facing him without her apparently moving, he went to look for another job. Victor had never worked for anything in his life. In his experience, jobs were things that happened to other people. Bees and Planter adjusted the tray around his wife's neck. All right, he said. Got everything? The banged grains have gone soft, she said, and there's no way to keep the sausages hot. It'll be dark, love. No one'll notice. He tweaked the strap and stood back. There, he said. Now you know what to do. 
Halfway through, I'll stop showing the film and put up the card that says, why not try a cool, refreshing drink and some banged grains, and then you come out of the door over there and walk up the aisle. You might as well mention cool, refreshing sausages as well, said Mrs Planter. And I reckon you should stop using a torch to show people to their seats, said Bizam. You're starting too many fires. It's the only way I can see in the dark, she said. Yes, but I had to let that dwarf have his money back last night. You know how sensitive they are about their beers. Tell you what, love, I'll give you a salamander in a cage. They've been on the roof since dawn. They should be nice and ready. They were. The creatures lay dozing in the bottom of their cages, their bodies vibrating gently as they absorbed the light. Bizam selected six of the ripest, climbed heavily back down to the projection room, and tipped them into the showing box. He wound Throat Dibbler's film onto a spool, and then peered out into the darkness. Oh well, might as well see if there was anyone outside. He shuffled to the front door, yawning. He reached up and slid the bolt. He reached down and slid the other bolt. He pulled open the doors. All right, all right, he grumbled. Let's be having you. He woke up in the projection room, with Mrs. Planter fanning him desperately with her apron. "'What happened?' he whispered, trying to put out of his mind the memories of trampling feet. "'It's a full house,' she said, "'and they're still queuing up outside. They're all down the street. It's them disgusting posters.' Bizam got up unsteadily, but with determination. "'Woman, shut up and get down to the kitchen and bang some more grains.' he shouted, and then come and help me repaint the signs. If they're queuing for five-penny seats, they'll queue for ten pence. He rolled up his sleeves and grasped the handle. In the front row, the librarian sat with a bag of peanuts in his lap. After a few minutes, he stopped chewing and sat with his mouth open, staring and staring and staring at the flickering images. Hold your horse, sir, ma'am. Now! By midday, Victor had earned tuppence. It wasn't that people didn't have horses that needed holding, it was just that they didn't seem to want him to hold them. Eventually, a gnarled little man from further along the street sidled up to him, dragging four horses. Victor had been watching him for hours, in frank astonishment that anyone would give the wizened, homunculus a kindly smile, let alone a horse. But he'd been doing a brisk trade while Victor's broad shoulders, handsome profile and honest open smile were definitely a drawback in the horse-holding business. "'You're new to this, right?' said the little man. "'Yes,' said Victor. Huh, "'I could tell. Waiting for your big break in the clicks, right?' he grinned encouragingly. "'No, I've had my big break, in fact,' said Victor. "'Why are you here, then?' Victor shrugged. "'I broke it.' Huh, is that so? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. God bless you, sir. Right you are, sir, said the man, accepting another set of reins. I suppose you don't need an assistant, said Victor wistfully. Bizam Planter stared at the pile of coins in front of him. Throat Dibbler moved his hands, and it was a smaller pile of coins, but it was still a bigger pile of coins than Bizam had ever seen while in a waking state. And we're still showing it every quarter of an hour, breathed Bizam. I've had to hire a boy to turn the handle. I don't know what should I do with all this money. Throat patted him on the shoulder. Buy bigger premises, he said. I've been thinking about that, said Bizam. <laughs> Something with fancy pillars out in front. And my daughter Calliope plays the organ really nice. It'd make a good accompaniment. And there should be lots of gold paint and curly bits. His eyes glazed. It had found another mind. Holywood dreams. And make it a palace like the fabulous Roxy in Clatch or the richest temple there ever was, with slave girls to sell the banged grains and peanuts, and bees and planter walking about proprietorily in a red velvet jacket with gold string on it. Hmm? He whispered as the sweat beaded on his forehead. I said I'm off, said Throat. Got to keep moving in the moving picture business, you know. Mrs Planter says you've got to make more pictures with that young man, said Bizam. The whole city's talking about him. She said several ladies swooned when he gave them that smouldery look. 
She watched it five times, he added, his voice rhymed with sudden suspicion. And that girl, well... Don't you worry about a thing, said Throat loftily. I've got them under control. Sudden doubt drifted across his face. See you, he said shortly, and scurried out of the building. Bezam stood alone and looked around at the cobwebbed interior of the odium, his overheated imagination peopling its dark corners with potted palms, gold leaf and fat cherubs. Peanut shells and banged grain bags crunched under his feet. I have to get it cleaned up for the next house, he thought. I expect that monkey will be first in the queue again. Then his eye fell on the poster for Sword of Passion. Amazing, really. There hadn't been much in the way of elephants and volcanoes, and the monsters had been trolls with bits stuck on them. But in that close-up, well, all the men had sighed, and then all the women had sighed. It was like magic. He grinned at the images of Victor and Ginger. Wonder what those two are doing now, he thought. Probably eating caviar off gold plates and lounging around up to their knees in velvet cushions, you bet. End of CD 3